stories like that speak to how these businesses aren't really operating on the general ledger and the numbers coming out of it. I can't believe Uber was making all their you know, critical business decisions when worth tens of billions of dollars without any insight into their business. And that, that my guess is, yeah, without knowing anyone over there, that they were viewing yeah, their QuickBooks instance as an afterthought. No, well, we just have to get the books done. And like us, they were, they were making business decisions on non-accounting systems. Do you have any startup clients on QuickBooks Online that someday plan to go public? Are you a CFO dreading the need to migrate to an expensive and complicated ERP just so you can clear all those SOX compliance hurdles? What if you could be SOX compliant, go public, and stay on QuickBooks Online? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor of Eyes later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Earmark Accounting Podcast. I am your host, Blake Oliver, CPA, and I feel like today we have hit the big leagues. We are we are a new level of production here with our guest today, Graham Stanton, co-founder of Peloton. Graham, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Blake. I feel like I've hit the big leagues just by being <laughs> here, so really appreciate it. I am so eager to talk to you about your experience at Peloton and your new business that you have started, Evise. Um, but first, like for our listeners that are curious and confused, what 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 brings the co-founder of Peloton to a show about accounting? Well, that is a, that is a good question. Um, Do you have a finance yeah, or accounting background? Are you an accountant? Like, like yeah, you know, let. Yeah, like, why not just jump right into it? I mean, I'm not an accountant. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I have something of a background. My dad was an accountant. My grandfather was an accountant. It's in the blood. Uh, yeah, it's in the blood. But uh, no, I, I say that uh, I joke that I drew the short straw in uh, having to figure it out at Peloton among the co-founders just because I had some exposure to uh, some accounting in the past and finance. And uh, I learned you know, just how hard it is to actually do accounting. So you and your co-founders, how many of you were there? So there were uh, five of us total. Five co-founders. Okay. And everybody was deciding, what am I going to do? How am I going to you know, help Peloton grow? And you, you got assigned accounting finance. Did you volunteer for it? Was it just like somebody has to do it, so I'll do it? Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's probably the best way to look at it. It's the way it goes at a number of startups, most startups, I'd say, where there's just so much to get done. Everyone's running around and uh, we just all pitched in as we could. So yeah, I, I, I worked as a paralegal for some of it. I actually wrote a lot of the Android code for the tablet because I used to be a software engineer at one point. I did a lot of the marketing and uh, got finance and accounting started. So you said your your father was an, an accountant, is that right? Um, yes, he was. And what kind of accountant? What did he do? 
Well, he was, um, yeah, he, uh, he did public accounting. He was an auditor at, uh, at one of the big six firms, as he puts it. Okay. So I imagine, was that while you were growing up? Was he, uh, you know, gone doing audits or like, did he have his own firm at some point? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that's a that's a good question, man. How did how did that actually affect my formative years? <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, um, yeah, my, my youngest years. Yeah, absolutely, he was off doing audits um, at, at the big firm, and then uh, and then he's, he switched over after twelve years of public accounting. He can't. Um, he went in house and uh, took a CFO job. Got it. So I imagine he was around a lot more after that, probably. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was it, he still worked pretty hard, but uh, tough, tough to match. Uh, yeah, audit firm life, especially when yeah, establishing oneself. So I've got to confess, uh, I don't own a Peloton. I've never mm-hmm. used a Peloton. I don't, to be honest, have much of a desire to uh, to ride on a Peloton bike. Although I know that there are many other products that Peloton is expanding into now. Um, are you an avid cyclist? Like, did you get into this because? you were passionate about the the device itself or was it more of a just a business opportunity here is something that I can participate in growing? Yeah, it, uh, it was a little bit of both. I would say I, uh, as fortune had it, um, there was a couple friends of mine, old coworkers who were just getting started and asked if I wanted to join. And, a few months prior, I had taken my first indoor cycling class and found it to be a lot of fun. But no, I mean, I wasn't a, wasn't a cyclist by background, wasn't like a big fitness person. And I think that was, that was really a part of what made things work out because yeah, we didn't really, none of us came from that world. And a couple of my co-founders are a lot more athletic than I am, but none of us was like a professional fitness uh, entrepreneur or trainer or anything like that. Uh, yeah, we were just passionate about delivering a good user experience and um, you know, oh, that's, packaging up something that was fun. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I think a lot of times with startups or products, there's always you know one person who had this vision for a product that they themselves wanted. And so then they go out and you know create the company to build it. But you're saying that it was it wasn't it wasn't that there wasn't like a single person who had that vision. Well, I would say that uh, yeah, I, I would say that John Foley, the founding CEO, had that vision for a product that he himself wanted, okay, or his wife wanted, and uh, he did a good job selling that vision to the rest of us, and so we all wanted it. But yeah, he wanted that as a as a consumer, and, and that's how we all that's how we all approached it, and. Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, talk a, a, a little bit you know, as we continue about you know, how that eventually transitioned into starting an accounting software company. Yes, and th- th- there are some real parallels there of how. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't uh, a fitness trainer beforehand; none of us were. And um, yeah, I'm not. You know, I'm not an accountant by background, and you know, certainly not a professional. Um, yeah, wasn't a professional accounting software creator, but. Uh, I wanted to create the software that I myself would use. And uh, yeah, I should also say that my co-founder, who is an actual CPA, would also use. So let's talk about that journey then. So uh, 
take me back to the beginning at Peloton. You are going to take on accounting. Did you just sign up for QuickBooks? Like, how did it begin? It uh, it began with my showing up for my first day of work in our in our office in the garment district in New York City, and uh, my my co-founder, the CEO, was sending me a spreadsheet of all the expenses the company had incurred to date, and saying, "Well, we should probably do something with this. Let's." Let's figure it out. So just like I, an Excel file, he sends you what, yep. like, like he exported from the bank and categorized transactions and sends you that and says, this is our, this is what we got. This is where we're, we're at right now. It wasn't even that. It, it, it was manually maintained. I mean, he was meticulous about keeping track of every penny that had been spent. But rather than entering that into QuickBooks or some piece of accounting software, or, yeah, I think in terms of double entry bookkeeping, it was really uh, something of a single entry accounting. This is what we've done. Here's the expenses. That's it. Well, I, I guess in a startup, it's easy, right? Because at the beginning, you just got burned. You're just spending money. So, yeah, it, it, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, there, there's no revenue. There's um, for accrual accounting. There's minimal in terms of um, yeah, of short term. Yeah, liability is still out there. It really is just a, this is the cash we spent. So it was not that hard to get started, but uh, we did initially work with you know, work with a local CPA firm who you now were great. I think their expertise was more restaurants and car dealerships and you know more traditional businesses than a fast growing startup, but. They were at least able to help us get started on QuickBooks and you know, have something of a record. Got it. So you you went to a firm right away. You said, help me get set up on uh, on the accounting system, and, and they got you on QuickBooks? Uh, they, they did. They, they, or they, they recommended a bookkeeper who was, who was great. And um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, thinking back on it, one of my, one of my regrets was that I didn't at least try to do the books myself to get started. I had some, some sense from having worked on a bigger company that if I was one of the co-founders, it was um, you know, a violation of segregation of duties if I was also booking journal entries. And of course, that's, just a, that's something of a joke. When it's a tiny company of five people, there's no one to care about such a thing. But what it meant was that I didn't have a, uh, I didn't end up having a close enough relationship with this, uh, with this accounting firm to actually talk through, okay, well, this real, this is how the business works and how we should, how maybe we could, you know, collaboratively, uh, figure out how to shape the accounting to represent the business as it was. Tell me more about that. So you, you felt they were just doing the books and you didn't have the input that you wanted to have, or you weren't able to shape it the way you wanted to shape it. Yeah, I think they I think it was, a, it was a common situation where, yeah, as you said, they, they were doing the books and, and that was their mandate, and I did. And you know, in hindsight, I realized I never asked for anything else. I think probably most people know. And what, what that meant was they could file our taxes, they could deliver gap compliant financials to make the investors and lenders happy that, okay, well, yeah, we, we have real 
financial statements. And yeah, we weren't we weren't doing audits, but they were able to provide a, to some degree of review. But we couldn't run the business off any of that. And so what, what that meant was we ended up maintaining parallel systems, uh, spreadsheets and databases that gave us more insight into the business, but didn't necessarily put to the official financials. Got it. So they were doing the books for tax purposes, for reporting to investors, for financial reporting purposes, let's say. You were running the, you and your co-founders were running Peloton on a separate set of metrics that you were tracking in a different system. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's fair to say. And they they were pretty close to each other. And if they were ever far off, we could dig into it and, and explain why. But in most of yeah, most of the business decisions, until it really was time to grow up, and you know, ultimately we had to comply with Sarbanes Doxley, and yeah, everything really had to be all one. But in the years before that, it meant that we had systems that didn't tie to the official financials, that didn't tie to the financials that ultimately were audited, that didn't benefit from the. You know, thousand years of history behind double entry bookkeeping. And I think we were poorer for it. So what did you use to do that? Were you doing that in spreadsheets? I'm talking about the management reporting, mm-hmm. the reporting you and your you know, co-founders were using. Was it spreadsheets? Was it something else? Yeah, it was, it was a number of things. So we, yes, we used so many spreadsheets. You know, we, we get to the point where when tracking individual orders and trying to trans trying to translate things to for um, actually getting into the books down the road, what were the fifty fifty? Yeah, what what were the like what were the top indicators that you watched that you, that you and the co founders were Peloton management, if you will? What, what were you focused laser focused on? We were laser focused on a hand, on a handful of metrics the the top one was bike sales and so we were tracking the orders as they came in mm-hmm. and that already is slightly divorced from you know, gap recognition of revenue right yeah we we didn't we did wait for the bike to show up in someone's home before we you know, we acknowledged that the sale had happened and mm-hmm. um, but then there, there was a potential loss of information between those two. So it, it was bike sales. And we wanted to make sure that we were getting these bike sales for a reasonable amount of marketing spend. So we were really close to and tracking very carefully how much we spent on each ad channel and how many sales we could actually attribute to that. But that, that was yet another source of potential mismatch because we track the ad spend manually in spreadsheets or we get reports from online advertising portals. And there's a risk that some of those numbers wouldn't necessarily foot to the invoices that we ultimately got that the accounting team would use right. to book the financials. So you're saying like, uh, example, you're doing Facebook ads and you wanted to be able to say, we spent this much on Facebook ads and we generated this many orders for the bikes. Right, exactly. And 
we'd want to know if we said that we want to average three hundred dollars spend for bike sold, but on the margin we'd go up to fifteen hundred. We'd want to very carefully track that, and we'd use we'd use Facebook's online portal to track Facebook spend. And this the same for Google and others. And Facebook, from what I recall, was actually pretty good about the invoices ultimately matching what we had from the online portal, but. Google could be off substantially because they had room for a number of adjustments in either direction between the time we pull the data on a daily basis and when they send us the invoice. So there was real risk for us thinking we're super precise and then discovering later that, well, we're not, but we don't know quite where. This episode of the Earmark Podcast is sponsored by Avise. Avise is a modern accounting system that centralizes and automates accounting workflows within the general ledger to achieve one source of financial truth. Avise consolidates data across multiple entities within the general ledger, giving you the OPEX reports that growing businesses need. Avise can also speed your close with task management, collaboration, and the ability to automate your prepaid, accrual, deferred revenue, and fixed asset schedules. Avise even does flux analysis to assist in forecasting, budgeting, and maintaining corporate integrity. Avise will allow your fastest growing clients to focus on their business, stay SOX compliant, and go public instead of spending time and resources on a large and costly ERP migration. To learn more about how Avise can help you extend the life of QuickBooks Online for your clients, head over to earmarkcpe.promo/avise. That is earmarkcpe.promo forward slash A-V-I-S-E. Avise. Finance professionals deserve better. So you're, uh, you're tracking orders, you're tracking ad spend, anything else? And, the, uh, and, and then the, the next most important one to us that then became the most important over time was tracking people continuing to use the bikes and continuing to pay their monthly subscription. And though we we tended to view that as a downstream metric from are they actually using it? And, and we'd be focused more on that. So usage, I mean, I know the bikes are connected to the internet and I guess you, you know when somebody starts a workout, right? Every time. Is that what you were tracking? Yeah. Like how many, like how often they're using the bike? Uh, yes, uh, that, that's it. It would be, um, we'd be focused more on completing a workout or completing, you know, yes. whatever they, whatever we thought was a good proxy for Yes, so this counts as a, as a real workout. Yeah. And if, if the connected bikes are, you take a class on it, it's saved to your history. So it's available to be aggregated yeah. in an anonymized way to the overall statistics. And yeah, we, we'd be looking at, we'd be looking at that recurring revenue and, and, and trying to calculate lifetime value. Have based on those early indicators, lifetime value. So you could anticipate churn on the subscriptions based on uh, how much people were using the bikes. I imagine, right? Because you could, like, did, was there a, a magic number where if they completed X number of workouts, you knew they weren't going to churn? That sort of thing. Yeah, there, there was. Um, yeah, we, we did look at it yeah, along those lines. No one. It would, it would be something like yeah, if they do six workouts, then then we know they're in. But 
the vast majority of people would do that. And what we what we'd really look for is, and because the vast majority of people would get started, we'd look for a sudden shift. And so it'd be a storm. You know, someone got injured or something like that, and and then we try to predict. Okay, well, who's who's likely to churn? But the churn was you know, thankfully very low, and just, yeah, we were able to start modeling out what our lifetime value is, and that was very important than going back on the acquisition side saying, well, if we know this lifetime value is really high, then we're willing to spend a lot on advertising to get new customers, but not beyond that. And we still needed to know it worked. So we, we still needed to be very, uh, you know, very clear on what our ad spend really was because $1,500 for one more might be good, but it'd be very easy to miss a few data points. And it's actually $5,000. Were you making money on the bikes? Were you breaking even? Were you losing money on the bikes and then hoping to make it up on the subscriptions? It, it, it changed over the over the course uh, of Peloton's history, and the you know, we we always looked in the, in a holistic in a holistic view, um, and you know whether was yeah whether it was in terms of the initial gross margin. Um, or the uh, or or the acquisition cost to bring in a customer and then be able to get the subscription net of all additional costs. Uh, we we wanted to make sure we were never really underwater on that one. Yeah, but yeah, it, it, exactly as you say with with that subscription. Thankfully, people stuck around, and so we could be fairly confident we'd end up ahead. Were there any big financial disagreements at that stage of the business? I think uh, in the first few years, and so you know, I'll say yeah, in the time before we were really looking ahead to IPO, for sure there were strategic questions and discussions that were informed by the financials. And it, it was questions like, what should, how should we calculate lifetime value? What, you know, what uh, discount rate should we use? And yeah, what long-term churn assumptions should we make, given that yeah, most people had only had a bike for about a year, trying to extrapolate to what their churn rate's going to be in year five would be a little tricky. And then we could say, well, if they stick around year five, the churn rate should be lower. We could say, well, they're five years older and their life was changed, maybe it should be higher. And, and so there, there's, there's some of that discussion. And uh, also, on the, also on the acquisition, that was... Yeah, it's something scary to say we should spend this much on marketing because we have the confidence that the lifetime value is higher because you know that that that's cash now and like one's kind of a certain and the other's very uncertain. Yeah, and, and even though the discount rate factors in, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's tough to know. Your lifetime value is when you've only had people on a subscription for a year. How how can you possibly know that they're gonna? It's a guess, right? You're making a lot of assumptions on that lifetime value. So I imagine it, it could be a huge range depending on whether you were conservative or optimistic. Oh, absolutely. It was, yeah, we, we could, yeah, we could say we should look at, we should pretend it's two years worth of subscription. Yeah, we could tweak a few assumptions very reasonably and say, oh, well, actually, we should think of it as 10 years. And uh, we actually had a, 
on our, on our acquisition team and acquisition slash business intelligence, because it, it was that important. We hired someone who had a PhD in math from MIT to help crunch through all of it and it solved all sorts of problems, but even he had to throw his hands up on the LTV calculation to say, this is really more of a philosophical question than a math question. Well, you, you must have guessed pretty accurately, or at least good enough, because you know Peloton did go public, and it seems to have done fairly, fairly well, I'd say. I think most people would say. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I feel, I mean, I, I feel great about it. I, I feel like we set out, yeah, we, had, we, we set out to introduce a product that we knew was great, that we ourselves loved, and we wanted to introduce it to as many people as possible. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think we were fairly conservative along the way on, on acquisition where we, uh, yeah, we really held ourselves to high standards and, you know, we, we ran a world series ad one year and we had all sorts of metrics, yeah, partly thanks to that MIT math PhDs to show that was a huge success. And then the next year we bought six world series ads. Wow, and our data showed that okay, well then we overshot it. That wasn't that wasn't worth it, and so then we we pulled back from there. You know, we were we were honest with ourselves whenever things weren't working, and so yeah, we we got to IPO and we went from years of no one ha no one having heard of Peloton to everyone having heard of Peloton. Well, and my friends who own Pelotons are very vocal about it. They are big fans, and I've always admired that about the company. It's that like the users are very passionate. Yeah, and that was uh, that obviously is something we hoped would happen. We we believed would happen, but the, the community still surprised us, and uh, it, it was it was fantastic. And the the riders turned out to be great people. Uh, I think they genuinely are great people. It was also a very positive kind of environment where you know people feel good about themselves when they take a Peloton class. So let's go back uh, to the, the accounting system because we like to talk about accounting systems on this show. We like to nerd out about technology and apps. And so I'd love to know more about that early app stack that you were using for accounting and finance at Peloton. What did you add on to QuickBooks? Or, or I guess, tell me about the journey of where you went because I don't imagine that the Peloton stayed on QuickBooks all the way through the IPO. I imagine you had some systems changes and uh, that can be quite dramatic. So I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, it was definitely dramatic, um, but yeah, correct. The, the answer is we were not, uh, we were not running on QuickBooks at, at the time of the IPO, though uh, I have heard, since heard of at least one well-known public company that was running on QuickBooks at the time of their IPO. It, it, it happens. Is, is that the Uber uh, story you're talking about? Cause I know they got to, they were on like QuickBooks desktop with, you know, hundreds of thousands of vendors in there for for a really long time. I don't know if it was all the way to the IPO though. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know the details on that one. I I, I, have, heard, I have heard that as well that they pushed it pretty far, but yeah. I, I believe they had made the transition by the time of IPO. But I think it really speaks to I mean, stories like that speak to how these businesses aren't really operating on the general ledger. And the numbers coming out of it, I can't, I can't believe 
Uber was making all their you know, critical business decisions when worth tens of billions of dollars without any insight into their business. And that, that my guess is, you know, without knowing anyone over there, that they were viewing you know, their QuickBooks instance as an afterthought. No, well, we just have to get the books done. And like us, they were they were making business decisions on non-accounting systems. And yeah, that, that certainly was where we were at Peloton. We had um we had a homegrown e-commerce system for better or for worse. And certainly felt like for worse um for much of the time. And we had we had an AWS Redshift data warehouse that could ingest all that data and all the usage data and that was that was the domain of that MIT PhD. And we had various other external systems that would be aggregated via spreadsheets. But it would always, you know, it, it would go in different directions. So that the data would be pulled together by different groups of analysts, by, maybe by FPNA and by business intelligence. And then it would go to where it needed to go for decisions to be made in a not so great, you know, track, not really a trackable way. And then it would also go to the accountants who were sort of at the end of the queue, really, for getting the data into, we were running on QuickBooks desktop at the time. And that meant that no decisions were made really based on what the accountants did. And there were certain murky parts of the business where yeah, I, I would literally lose sleep at night worrying like, what if we're missing something really big here and we don't have the safety of double entry bookkeeping and the audit and, and rigorous accounting practices. Right. Because you're making business decisions based on what's in that data warehouse, but that hasn't been reconciled. Correct. And if we worked really hard, we could almost reconcile it. But most people were, most of the time, the teams were too busy to even do that on a regular basis. And, and so I had the genius idea that this thing called enterprise resource planning could solve all of that. And, and I, I'd say that, that that's sort of on me for not appreciating that an ERP is a tool to where you you can put all that data once it's clean, but at least in our case, it, it didn't it didn't clean the data. It didn't solve any of those underlying issues. And really, moving to an ERP now just added yet one more thing that we had to contend with while running all the other somewhat messy processes. So you went from QuickBooks Desktop to what? We implemented NetSuite. It was a lengthy process and. The business was complicated, and so the, the NetSuite team rightly told us, "Well, you're going to need to work with some good implementation consultants on this." And then that got a lot complicated, and we realized, "Well, we we now need people to manage the implementation consultants and, and this process." So, so we hired enterprise IT, and, and enterprise IT said, "Okay, well, this is this is fairly complicated. There's a lot of work to do here. We're going to need other consultants as well," and. Yeah, it, it very quickly turned into um, th this big, hairy operation just to get us on to NetSuite. And meanwhile, none of this 
really addressed you know, the, the core underlying problems of, of clarity, of getting the books closed in a timely manner. And I think it was necessary. I mean, we, we were going public at some point. We needed to be on a system that would satisfy the requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley for us. We couldn't stay on QuickBooks desktop to go public. But yeah, I, I had the learning experience of finding out that just implementing you know, one of these best-in-class ERPs doesn't yeah. you know, fix all the inputs or any of them. So uh, my co-host uh, of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, David, and I have been to Sweet World for a few years now. And every year we go and we get to talk to customers and partners and most of the people there love it, right? That's why they're there. They're very happy. But every single one of them says, yeah, the implementation was a lot of work. And they they don't skirt around that. That's like the biggest complaint I hear about ERP systems is, oh yeah, our, our implementation took 12 months. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, and a bunch of consultants too, right? I'm thinking to myself, wow, I don't have 12 months as a startup founder to deal with this. Like, what what makes it so difficult? It, it, it's a it's a really good question, and because you know, just thinking about software, it shouldn't need to be so difficult, and and that's ultimately I'll get to it in a bit. But that's ultimately what led to advice. Was, you know, what, what would the software be that that wasn't so difficult that didn't yeah you know, that didn't require this big implementation, um, migration and implementation, and I think that's yeah. I, I think that kind of gets to it. I mean, I, the word migration is, well, yeah, to even get started, the data needs to be in a different format, yeah, you know, form than it exists within QuickBooks. So there's all sorts of reworking of the chart of accounts and decisions to be made about do you even migrate the data that exists in QuickBooks? Yeah, and that's a nightmare. <laughs> that's a nightmare. Yeah. Right, it, it, it's absolutely a nightmare. Yeah. We talk to people all the time, and we decide not to. Yeah, and I mean, it, at, at Bellathon, we decided not to. Yeah, it, 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 the implementation was you know, was painful enough as it was, without trying to shoehorn the historical QuickBooks data into it. Even going from one small business accounting system to another, most of the people that I know that do lots of implementations have just gotten to the point of saying, you know, it would be nice to have the historical data in the system. But the odds that we're going to be able to do that and cut you over so that you're not running parallel systems for months and months is very low. So let's just do a clean cut, right? And and figure out a way for you to get your comparatives. Uh, I mean, I've heard stories about NetSuite implementations that just go on and on forever because uh, they decide to try and get in the historical information. So then you're catching up NetSuite to what's in QuickBooks and you're simultaneously trying to import your last month's QuickBooks into NetSuite and the cutover never really happens, right? Because it's very difficult to run two systems at once. So I think you made a wise decision there, it sounds like, to not import the historicals. Yeah, I, I think it wouldn't have been an option. Um, Let yeah, me ask you something else I, about, yeah. can I ask you something else about the NetSuite thing? Um, so. Was the goal when you set up NetSuite to try and bring in all of this management data that you were doing in separate systems into NetSuite along with the accounting so that you'd have like one system for running the business? Because that's the big pitch of NetSuite, I think, or the big 
idea behind it, right? Or in ERP systems in general, like Sage Intact will tell you this too. Let's bring in your operational data with your financial data. And now you get dashboards and all that great stuff. Like, was that what you were trying to do? Or were you just trying to do it for the SOX compliance? I think we should, we started with the original goal and then we, we fell back to the second one. So we started wanting to get yeah. all the operational data in and we ended up saying, okay, well, let's at least get tax compliance. And yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very 1990s approach. And yeah, I think about the history of that sort of, I mean, I, I, I wasn't really working with accounting systems in 1998 when they, when they were released. And I, I I can only imagine how yeah, how revolutionary it was, but yeah, I do think back to the '90s, and I, I was yeah, working a little bit in the '90s, and I, I remember that uh, a lot of companies didn't even have much of their operations on computers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, of course you need one, an all-in-one system because uh, you don't have a system for yeah, for most for most of what you're doing. And I, I, I hear good stories about you know, companies that you know, getting their operations on, on NetSuite. It clearly still works for a number of people today. But you know, it, in our case, for the complexity of our business and you know, the, the newness of it and, and how fast we're moving, it, it, it was just a mismatch to get the, all the operational stuff in there, uh, which had big implications kind of like all the way through. So it, it meant that these other systems that we thought wouldn't be in scope for socks at all, or where the burden would be light, you know, such as uh, the, the e-commerce, like aspects of the e-commerce system. Okay, well, they take the order, so that's in scope for socks, but they don't need to maintain so fully socks compliant historical data because that's going to live in NetSuite. And then we learned that well, NetSuite couldn't really handle yeah, handle all of our data that way. And so now this system is in scope for socks. Where uh, I told the business intelligence team who managed the Redshift data warehouse that had all sorts of data in it, that while it, our, our work is hard enough as it is, like, let's be thankful that we're not in the flow for socks. And, and then as we're, for, we're about a year out from IPO, we realized their number of uh, metrics that we want to disclose publicly that can only come from the system that there's no chance we'll ever get out of NetSuite. And now this is in scope for socks. But I think that in our case, the NetSuite implementation, it still stayed pretty hard and we're still doing a lot, but we just narrowed the scope to be the financials. And then that meant that everything else had to integrate. So you're just pulling everything in from a financial perspective into NetSuite, generating the financials. Uh, so really it was SOX that like motivated this shift then. What do you think about SOX? Like as somebody who has uh, gone through it, do you think it's good for businesses? Do you think it's good for markets? Or do you think it's a waste of people's time? Or is it something in between? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, now, now that I've been through it. Did it make Peloton I, I, I better? Think, I think it. Yeah, I, I think it did. You know, I think about. You know, I think about the, the case of you know, the case of Peloton. I, I don't know. I think a lot of what we did to support Fox was good, important work, and 
would it have been possible to achieve most of those goals with a less stringent set of laws and regulations? Probably. And, and I think that, you know, would it have, would degrees of materiality have helped, you know, if, if we narrowed the scope on, okay, what needs to be penny for, yeah, you know, like accurate to the penny and what can we just have some confidence in as, as close enough? You know, versus the, the same set of requirements apply to the, the core financial systems as apply to the you know, really ancillary systems. But I think the the spirit behind it was very good. The, the the idea of well, in order to take the public's money and investment, we have to grow up in terms of controls and yeah, having some rigor to the internal systems, and that. Yeah, that that was absolutely beneficial. I'll, I'll say it's above my pay grade to determine what level of mandates there need to be around it, but it was important work. Well, you know, I feel like I wouldn't say it's above your pay grade because you're an investor yourself in Peloton. I imagine in other companies now, and like, what's the purpose of all this if it's not to protect investors, right? Like, if it doesn't add value to investors, then why do we do this stuff as accountants? That's how I've started to approach a lot. And I, I feel like there's a lot in accounting that we do, like especially when it comes to audit, that really creates no value to investors anymore. And it's just a suck on it and a drain on the entire economy. If you think about it, it's a tax on the economy that we do this stuff that doesn't, that people don't really seem to care about. Um, I mean, when was the last time you looked at an audit report for a company you invested in? Like nobody does, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't dig too deep into the. I don't even dig too deep into the financials if I'm if I'm investing. But right, and no, and it, it, it's helpful to see the story, and I think that is, I think that is one. I I don't know the under the true underlying cause, but I I agree that is one of the tragedies of modern accounting, that so much of the work on that accountants do doesn't inform business decisions, doesn't inform investing decisions in, in this sort of rote busy work. A great example is those metrics you were talking about earlier in this episode, where uh, you said, you know, we looked very carefully at acquisition cost and lifetime value. And that ratio, there's a, there's a name for the ratio, I forget what it is, right? But it's like your, you know, cost to acquire a customer divided by your lifetime value. And you know, you want that, you want your cost to be less than the lifetime value, right? If you're going to succeed as a company, otherwise you're going to lose money long, right, long term. And nowhere in GAAP or in the published financial statements do we have any of those metrics as like defined universal metrics where everyone's using the same methodology of computing them. And I just wonder why. Why don't we have that in the accounting standards for subscription businesses that you're going to report on, you know, some sort of standards that we can compare companies, but instead here we are expensing all of our sales and marketing costs every single period. And there's no match between the revenue coming in and the sales and the marketing because right, we're spending money to, to get new customers, but that revenue is down the road mm -hmm. in subscriptions, right? So it's all mismatched. And that's why subscription businesses look terrible in public financial statements generally because they're burning all this cash to acquire customers. They're nowhere on the balance sheet, but in the mind of an investor, those customers have a value 
<laughs> right? Like it just seems kind of mind-boggling that we we you know, we're using industrial accounting for software businesses. It, it it is it is a funny it is a funny situation and yeah i i 100% agree and i, I and i i fell in the successful modern accountants that hopefully understand this and and will understand this and you know maybe it's not represented in the gap financials but for sure marketing spend should at least conceptually, right? It doesn't need to be written down this way anywhere, but should be thought of as an investment that the right. attention can sit on the balance sheet. Right. But instead it's a period expense. But really, like if we think about it as founders, investors, it's an investment. It's cap, it's CapEx or it's some flavor of it, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, just, so if it, if it acquires customers, that's a very clear one. That the, yeah. these customers, that's a future revenue stream that, I mean, I, I get that it, it's, it's a very uncertain value and gap is necessarily conservative. And so you can't recognize something that, you know, very well might not happen, but probabilistically it's going to, it's going to happen. And especially across yeah. all your customers. And there's a range, uh, right? Even it, yeah. Yeah. It, it's got value. Yeah. It's not zero. And even before that, even before people are customers, if if the marketing team says we are doing, we are buying these ads to increase brand awareness, well, then brand awareness has a monetary value to it and should also yeah. sit on the balance sheet. I, I think the thing that illustrated this for me really poignantly was what happened with Netflix earlier this year, where the stock price cratered because they reported subscriber losses for the first time. And I went into the financials and I downloaded them from, I think it's called Edgar, the SEC website. And I was one of, you know, like two dozen people to actually download the financials, I'm sure. Like that's the, that's the joke, right? Um, so I looked at it and I'm like, okay, their EPS is good, right? They've got good earnings. They've got good cash flow. They've got plenty of cash on hand. And yet their stock price is tanking. And it's because of this one number, subscribers. And it's because I, I think that investors have figured out that subscribers are the most valuable part of a subscription business because they, they represent literally your future cash flows. <laughs> um, but like, that's not, that's only reported because Netflix chooses to disclose it. Like they don't have to. And I, I wonder why, yeah, why, why don't we have every subscription business report their subscribers and make an estimate of their lifetime value of some sort? I'd love to have that as a, as an investor. Yeah, I mean, everyone for sure. Yeah. It's, I think every, every, yeah, and so then what happens is every subscription business does report to some degree because they have to and they, the investors expect it. So even if it's not mandated, yeah, people aren't going to invest if they, if they don't have some insight there. But yeah, you're right. Everyone calculates it. Everyone calculates it differently. And now, uh, yeah, I'll say that at Peloton, we, you know, we made decisions on you know, how to calculate the publicly released metrics, balancing the two sides of um, what we believe to be the most economically true representations of things, and also what could be calculated in the most straightforward way from other numbers in the gap financials. And 
No, I, th- I think that that was a good balance for something that was defensible, digestible, and that that, that people could chew through. But there, it did leave more to be done. So, you know, you know, we'd say, you know, if this is our churn, and you extrapolate that out, then you can assume that people will be paying us for this many years, and, and therefore they. And then implying, therefore, the lifetime value is you know, the subscription times 12 times, you know, price times 12 times. Um, there's the gross profit on the subscription times 12 times the number of years. And we'd make no, we wouldn't factor in the discount rate. Right. But we took the stance of, well, of course, you got to factor in the discount rate, but every investor can do their own calculation for what they think the discount rate should be. And that, like, why would we as a company make that mm. call? That, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's kind of a, you know, that's a key final step in the calculation. Right. Uh, yeah. like, you know, I'm sure like every hedge fund out there you know, doing the investment and, and some very sophisticated people doing it, at least that calculation and more. But yeah, in the, in the public filings, there, there's no attempt to come up with the true like, economic present value of a subscription. So at what point did you hire a CFO? Yeah, we we hired a CFO. Um, now we we had in my time there we had, we had two CFOs, um, and we, we had the CFO that helped us get our house in order and the CFO who took us public, and we we hired that that first CFO just as we were getting started with the NetSuite implementation, which you know I always had to uh, apologize to her for and to the rest of the team because it meant that I could take a step back from the finances and, and no longer you know, be directly in the critical path there just as we had to get this implementation going. And what did you look for in that first CFO? On that one, it was um, the, the business Yeah, the, the business had gotten complicated and uh, the part of the motivation for and part of the same motivation for you know, for getting an ERP was that um, you know, was that we didn't have much insight into the business and, and operationally finance and accounting was starting to get away from us. Our, we had a monthly close process and then it started stretching out to the point where it was almost taking a month to close the books each month and, and I believe at one point we actually did get get to a spot where it's taking us more than a month, so we're falling farther and farther behind. And so, so we looked for someone who had good operational finance experience. Companies of similar size had um, you know, had experience preparing a company for IDEO, or if they, at least they are getting ready. And and those were the key requirements when looking for a CFO at that stage. So going back to the NetSuite implementation, the ERP implementation, it sounds like, uh, well, if I could summarize, you had initially hoped that it would become the system for everything, both management purposes and financial reporting purposes. And you ended up scaling that back to just the financial reporting side of things. Was that challenge what led you to start Avise? And that... Yeah, that that is exactly it. It was, it, it was you know, reflecting on that. It was the thought of, well, this was painful, and this was the end. This was the end result. 
what if there was a better approach and really thinking rather than what if there was an easier ERP out there or a better ERP? It was, well, if the financials and the, the, the compliance financials with the right controls and um, that, that can house the data is the goal. What if there was an easy system that could check the box for the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley requirements and that could help get the close process um, wrangled and you know, be a, a grown-up real repository that could pass the data, could support better reporting to actually support the business coming out of the jail, but didn't try to be the be-all and end-all operational system. And, and, and ultimately, it wouldn't really require a migration of any sort, could handle that automatically. Automatic migration. The, uh, uh, tell me more about that, because that is the thing that's the painful part, right? How do you... So I want to switch from QuickBooks <laughs> to a SOX-compliant GL. Advise is that... I love the headline on your website, by the way, Freedom from ERPs. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. So, like, how does how does that work? Yeah, and that's the uh, that that's the beauty of it. I mean, it, it makes it easier for us too. I and mean, we um, we integrate with QuickBooks. So, you know, our our pitch to QuickBooks is that we're not looking to move anyone off. Uh, we uh, think about that Uber situation where they're using QuickBooks you know, when they're worth however many billions of dollars, where it's kind of sort of been working, but you know, people are where we were at Peloton in terms of you know, needing some more grown-up um, features, uh, needing um, needing close management to actually, actually wrangle the close, the proper controls, and needing some automation on uh, yeah on uh, schedules that exist today in spreadsheets, mm-hmm. but. Otherwise, things have kind of been working with QuickBooks. So what we do is we plug into QuickBooks via the API, and we maintain a full bi-directional sync. We can, you can tell your auditors that Avise is the system that has all the controls and, and has the record that, that you need you know, for being a more grown-up yeah, grown business, but more grown-up accounting needs. But... The day-to-day operation in QuickBooks doesn't need to stop. There's no running two systems in parallel. It really ends up feeling like one, um, where you can do some of the work in QuickBooks day-to-day, and then you can do your closing entries and your whole close process, your reconciliations and reports out of advice. So I see here you've got closed task management. You've got the prepaid accrual deferred revenue schedules, fixed assets in there. So work papers, essentially, it sounds like. And then you've got consolidations as well. So is, is your goal to be able to, like, could a company go public with their accounting data in QuickBooks and using Avise as the, as the layer on top of that? Is that the idea? Yeah, that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty much it. That, that, that is the goal, and we ha- we're working towards it. We, uh, you know, we have our SOC 1. And which I believe Intuit could provide for QuickBooks, but they don't because there's not much demand for it. And, and so, yeah, we, we can check the box on, Sar- on Sarbanes-Oxley for housing the data. 
but yeah, it, it's not a, it's not a new system. Yeah, you know, we can. Right. Um, yeah, we just we just have the controls on the Avi side that don't exist on the that don't exist on the QuickBooks side. But you know, we, we want to be modern, easy to use. You know, we're we're building this in 2022. You know, a lot of the features you see here are new this year. Yeah, and it, it's not out of the 90s. We, we we care about the people using the software and and. Yeah, they're all all that accounting busy work. We we feel like that that's the stuff accountants shouldn't be spending their time on. And I see there's an AICPA logo on here. What's your what's your relationship with CPA.com? Well, that's our um, yeah that that's where we're going. Yeah, we we have our SOC certification. Yeah, oh, got the it. AICPA SOC yeah SOC one. Yeah, we've been working. Uh, with an audit firm on that one. Uh, now we, we got our SOC 1 Type 1. We're, I believe, a couple of weeks away of that for, from getting our SOC 1 Type 2 certification to actually be able to put up there. Well, this is really exciting. I mean, you know, it's sort of been taken for granted in the accounting technology world that you get to a certain size and you've got to get off of QuickBooks or you got to get off of zero and you got to go to an ERP system. And you don't really have a choice in the matter. And this is the first time I've heard about an alternative pathway that could allow you to to stay compliant and deal with all this stuff and and continue to grow. So that's really exciting. Um, thank you for you know creating this as as an option for people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's been fun. You know, you yeah. uh, you asked at the beginning, what's yeah, how's what's the connection? How's the journey from you know, from Peloton? And it, yeah, it, it was the former Peloton CEO who said to me as as we we're getting started, "Oh, it's just like Peloton, yeah, except yeah, whereas uh, we chose home fitness, you chose yet even more stodgy category of accounting <laughs> software to go and apply you know, modern usability and that simplistic approaches to." Well, you know the the great thing about accounting software is that uh, we don't have to ship bikes for thousands of dollars across the country, right? And manufacture them. That's nice. Um, and it's very sticky, right? Uh, I think that's that's one of the things about ERP systems actually is that once you're on it, you, you never want to have to switch again if you don't have to. Although it, it did, is NetSuite, is, uh, is, is Peloton still on NetSuite or have they gone even more upstream? Yeah, I know they were looking into it. Um, I, never, I never got the full story and where did that ended up? Um, yeah, and I, I left. I left the company uh, two and a half years ago at this point. So I'm unfortunately out of love on that. Got it. Uh, well, I, I guess I just have one more question for you, which is, you know, uh, you've been in the in the shoes of a founder who's responsible for accounting and finance. You've been a customer of a CPA firm, at least one. You've hired CFOs, you have hired accountants. Do you have any advice for accountants as to how they can increase their value to somebody like you? What should we be learning? What should we be trying to do? What can we do to to be better accountants in your view? That's a, it's a really good question. And, and I think the answer is coming from both sides is to make 
business leadership and accounting more of a partnership. At, at Advise, we, we talk probably too much about Luca Pacioli, who wrote the first book on double entry bookkeeping in, uh, in Renaissance Italy in the late 15th century. But, but that work really did revolutionize business at the time. And it enabled all sorts of more complicated businesses than were allowed before because, because of the power of accounting. And for whatever underlying reasons, we've fallen into this point, into this point where business decisions are being made based on systems that aren't the accounting system. Uh, the most important metrics are not gap financial metrics, but the correct calculation still rests on so much of the same work that accountants do or could do. And you know, when I think about it, I think that accountants really should be back in that, you know, in that key seat, right? Helping to give insight into the business, helping drive those decisions. And um, so then, yeah, to, to frame this as advice, and so if, if you're an accountant, you know, working in a big company, but especially if you're working at a startup, yeah, recognize that the job isn't to com the job isn't just to complete the closed checklist and deliver gap financials. The job is to deliver digestible insights. And the good news is the accountants know the business really well and are really well suited to do that. Well said. Graham Stanton, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for recording uh, this episode of the Earmark podcast, which is available for CPE on the Earmark CPE app. So if you need continuing professional education, go download the app on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and uh, take a quick five-question quiz and get your CPE certificate. Uh, you have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. So I hope you have learned a lot and uh, you've earned it. Graham, if people want to learn more about Advise, get in touch with you, uh, I think you're hiring at Advise as well. Where should they go? Yeah, well, you can find all the information you'd like initially at advise.com, but you know, please reach out, get in touch. And you can find me on LinkedIn. You can drop your email, your email address in the box. And we'd love to chat. And that URL is avise.com, Advise. Graham, great chatting with you. Yeah, great chat. Thanks so much for having me, Blake. Really enjoyed it. 